Hello, everyone. You are listening to episode 276 of the At Percussion podcast. My name is Ksenia Komjanovic, and with me are my beautiful co-hosts. <laughs> Big smile, Ben Charles. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ksenia. How are you? Hey, I am so charmed every time you smile. Thank you so much. <laughs> and that's difficult to do to Casey. He won't smile that much at me. Hey, Casey. I mean, he has a Steven Tyler smile. He ben does. like a huge... Um, Hollywood smile. Yeah, I yeah. think that's a compliment. <laughs> it just means Absolutely. you have a large mouth. That's all it means. I don't know if it's a compliment or not. I got big teeth. That's my mom. Yeah. Yeah, but big smile. So no, it's not that I'm. I can't smile big. I just don't have the equipment that Ben. You has. just don't have my mom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, Casey, tell us uh, what happened in music history today. Yeah. So if you're listening on release day, you're listening on what's called March 18th. 2021 and there's a whole host of premieres but something i wanted to tell you about was a composer we have a birth date 1961 polish composer hannah kulenty who you may or may not have heard of before but she has a percussion solo and it's called rc and it goes something like this sort of like a big zeklus i get the sense i don't know this piece but i want to investigate So Hannah Kulenty, happy birthday on this day in um, music history. Also, we've got a whole bunch of premieres, like I said, in music history. So trigger warning for those of you who went to music school. It's lots of names from music school. Uh, one, of course, is the birthday of Rimsky-Korsakov, 1844. March 18th is his birthday. Also, we've got a Bunch of premieres, 1929, Shostakovich, The New Babylon premieres in Leningrad. This is a film that he did the film score for. We have 1904, the first performance of Edward Elgar's In the South. It's kind of like a overture length, tone, short tone poem piece. And we have Transfigured Night, 1902, Arnold Schoenberg, Verklickt or Nacht uh, premieres in Vienna. And also the first performance in 1904, of Leodov's symphonic poem Baba Yaga in St. Petersburg, which not the most popular composer out there, but I bet some of our listeners have heard of, of Leodov. So instead of listening to a snippet of each of these, what I thought I would do, I thought we don't have time to listen to all these. The only practical thing to do was to just put them all together. So here's all four of them. I knew this was coming. <laughs> it's like, what else could I do? So here they all are. So glad I actually I played that symbol part on the Schoenberg before. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say all those funny sounds are from the Schoenberg, but anyway, yeah, Ksenia, aren't you glad I did the news today? I'm so glad. <laughs> if, I, if I could just add that that Schoenberg, I, I I would say I played it, but there, obviously there's no percussion part in it. It's for it's for it was originally string sextet, and then I don't know if people just played it as a string orchestra piece or if he made it into a string orchestra piece, but 
when I was in grad school, the orchestra played it. So I sat and listened to them rehearse it. Uh, but it's really interesting if you, if you learn about music history and the way that harmony developed going up to Wagner, where we get dissonance being spread over longer periods of time. This is really the final stop of traditional mm -hmm. harmony before Schoenberg threw that all away and, and invented 12 tone music. Uh, but it's weird because you're listening to Schoenberg and you're expecting it to be 12 tone music, but it sounds like Wagner. It's like late romantic yeah. harmony. And, and this really is cool. one of his pieces that, yeah, when, when, you know, you have people who question like, is this 12 tone thing all just like made up and this whole serialism thing, if they question like, you know, his, um, if they question his traditional ability to compose, yeah, you look back to Verklechternacht and some of his some of his earlier stuff before he had his big revelation and big change to twelve tone serialism and and all of that. A fun fact: um, it's considered his first major work. He wrote it in three weeks, and the poor reception was likely to due to his Jewish heritage than the music itself. Because, like you said, Ben, it fit right in with what people were happy to hear at the time. So um, that was something I read. Something fun I read about this Leodov piece, Baba Yaga, and like seriously, you know, I mashed them all together just for fun, but yeah, you should like, these are all good pieces and you should really go um, go give these pieces a, a fair shot if you've never if you've never really done so. But uh, this, this composer, Leodov, I, I found, Leodov studied at the St. Petersburg Conservatory under Rimsky-Korsakov, who remember also has birthday is today, but was known as a lazy student, never getting his work done on time and generally irresponsible. Eventually, Rimsky-Korsakov kicked him out of his class. Ultimately, Leodov did manage to become a professor at the conservatory and remained there most of his life, right? Because like anyone could be a professor, no matter how lazy you are, it's pretty easy. Prokofiev, one of Leodov's students, noted laziness was his most remarkable feature. This procrastination cost him the chance to write the Firebird for Diaghilev, a commission grabbed by Stravinsky later, who was launched onto the world stage with this ballet. When Leodov could harness himself to compose, his works were brilliant and often fantasy-like. Three of the most famous programmatic tone poems are Baba Yaga, Kikimora, and The Enchanted Lake. I don't know those other two pieces, but I have actually heard Baba Yaga before. So, March 18th, the news. I just had a quick little Schoenberg note to add. <clears throat> I teach a music appreciation class and like I, I force them to listen to 12 tone music, which they love. Uh, <laughs> oh, I hate it. But no, I mean, like I had a, a colleague once that, that he was more on the commercial music side of things. And he said something along the lines of, you can, you can make onion ice cream. And like, I, I'll, I'm not gonna deny that it's ice cream, I just don't care for it and I can explain why I don't care for it. And to me, that sort of sums up like 12 tone music. Like I don't deny that it's music. It has all the, the makings of music, but to me personally, I don't love to listen to it usually with some exceptions, Bernstein comes to mind. Um, but yeah, so I like when I think about Schoenberg, I think Transfigured Night is probably my favorite Schoenberg piece because I, don't care for the sound so much of most of them, although I can admit the merit behind it and, and see why it's important historically. So I don't know, my two cents. Even like, even like Baird Violin Concerto, Webern, I think that stuff is so beautiful. I, yeah, I'm just talking exclusively about Schoenberg here, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, gotcha. yeah, I mean, but like to, if you, uh, cool from West Side Story is a, is 12 tone, it's a 12 tone row. Um, and it doesn't sound like it because he kind of jazzes it up and harmonizes it. And I think that sounds really cool. So it proves that 12-tone technique can work. 
Um, but I just, for the most part, I haven't heard most Schoenberg 12 tone pieces that I've had a visceral reaction to and, and love them. But uh, no, the Berg Violin Concerto definitely comes to mind. I saw Chicago Symphony play that and it was killer. So yeah. Yeah, Schoenberg's crunchier than a lot of the his, uh, his students. Well, I've heard, I can't speak intelligently about this, but I've heard that Schoenberg was very like stuck to the rules and some of his students like Berg would use the rules, but then maybe bend something here or there to make it more appealing to the listener. Oh, right, right, right. Well, what a discussion. What a now I'm going to sound uneducated for not liking Schoenberg 12-tone music, so sorry. Well, come on, it's <laughs> onion know. ice cream. It's okay. <laughs> it's the best analogy I've ever heard. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Casey, for that. And now I'm really excited about this one, folks. And here's a little disclosure why and how I met our guest. I don't know if he remembers this, probably not. But uh, a few years ago, I visited our mutual friend and a former guest on the podcast, uh, Dimitri Nilov, who then studied at Yale. And uh, Dimitri was wonderful and uh, decided to walk me around the beautiful facilities, the library and everywhere else. And so I believe this must have been outside of the practice room or something as we were approaching it. Our guest was sitting there and I remember distinctly feeling starstruck like that moment when someone that you stared at on the screen for so long is in 3D and you like lose sight of reality. It somehow breaks and then they say hi to you. And we we just introduced uh, we got introduced to each other and I was like, he I'm so excited to meet him, but he has no idea who I am. Right. I know. I feel like I know him so well and he has no idea who I am. So that was that was really strange because I think I felt that like three times in my life. One was when I saw Chris Cornell perform. The other time was when I saw Velvet Revolver perform. And the third time was when I met our dear guest who I'm going to introduce now a little bit more. Um, anyway, our guest is the embodiment of a fantastic symbiosis. Had there been chomps, chomps, chops Olympics, <laughs> he could have easily won it. But also get this, he is the fourth percussionist to have ever been granted acceptance into the Yale University's doctoral program, which means also Brain Olympics won as well. You may also know him from the times he rocked out with the Blue Devils or from his performances with the Percussion Collective or his wonderful Icarus Quartet. Uh, he's premiered works by Vignal, Bresnik, Julia Wolf, Chris Theophanidis, James Wood, and so many more. And he's a guest lecturer of percussion at the Peabody Institute of the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore and the percussion professor at Lebanon Valley College in Pennsylvania. Matt Cowan just like Leonard Bernstein, right? Casey, that was how you instructed me to write and, and you And you nailed it. Yeah, like Bernstein, it. but- You did? Yeah, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you all. I do remember meeting you at the studio, absolutely. <laughs> I think you were there to, to rehearse and we just met in the, uh, in the foyer or something. And I can't remember if you were there to play for someone or just hanging out with Dimitri, but- yeah, I absolutely remember that. And it's great, great to, to be here with all of you again. Oh, well, so lovely. Thanks for saying that. I'm sure I must have looked like a mad woman where I was like, no, I don't know. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me, how are you doing? Where are you now? What have you been up to recently? Oh, well, right now uh, I'm in the Baltimore area. So I moved to this area maybe about two years ago, actually, just after finishing the residency of, of my doctoral degree. 
And so I've been down here for a few years and we're actually on campus at the school where we live. So my wife is an elementary music teacher at a private school in, uh, in the Baltimore area. And so we're actually faculty residents here. So we, we live at the school and I have a studio here and I drive up to Pennsylvania to work, drive into Baltimore to work and kind of just based all around this, this neck of the woods now. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, well, Ben wanted to go ahead and ask a very serious question. Well, I, I had a question. So uh, we've now learned how to mispronounce, uh, excuse me, how to pronounce Matt's name. But for the longest time, I was reading it online and, and was butchering it. Uh, but I, I remember, like, when I first saw your name kind of emerging online, uh, I saw, like, this, like, Matt Kiawen, as I was saying at the time, like, yeah. associated with, like, Yale and Robert Van Sice and Percussion Collective. And then I thought I remembered seeing the same name, like, associated with the Blue Devils and, like, kind of, like, saw the two but never it took me a very long time actually until i was like reading your website like oh that's that's the same guy and i think dimitri had even mentioned like oh yeah this guy's got drum corps chops um but it's it's always interesting to me because uh both of these things you know obviously exist in, in such elevated places in the percussion world but especially in academia oftentimes i see uh certain people kind of looking down on drum corps um, and I went to North Texas, so that certainly wasn't the case where I went. Um, but I was wondering, did Robert Van Sice have any opinions on drum chord that you'd be willing to share with us? And also just in general, how did it shape you as a player? And were you in it with Cameron Leach or was that a different era? He he was after me. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, he was, a, I, I don't know when he did it exactly, but a few years after me. Yeah, so I mean, basically the, this whole idea of the the two parts of my life is kind of what I feel like de defines me in a lot of ways as a musician and as a percussionist. And so even aside from your question of, you know, how, how that conversation went with Professor Van Sice, just I kind of grew up uh, as a marching percussionist. And for the longest time, that's what I thought I wanted to do. So to take this back even further, that's what my, my father does for a living. He's kind of gone off in a few different directions, but, but my dad for the longest time was a marching percussion instructor. And so we still worked together and that is the world that I was raised in. So my, my first instrument was a drum pad and I grew up learning marching percussion and being trained as a marching snare drummer and having aspirations that were more in line with the marching side and with the drum corps side. And it wasn't until later that I uh, decided that I might want to try out the other side of what percussion could be and started studying there as well. So. I really feel like I had my life up until 20 or 21, um, which, which was predominantly drum corps dominated, uh, but I was still studying and getting my degrees at the same time. And then my life since then, which has primarily been you know, chamber music and solo music dominated. Uh, and now that I'm finally out of school, that these things start to start to come together in, in their own way, which makes me really happy. This is like, if I see my, one of my missions in life, it's to bring these two things closer together because I do think that there is still a large disconnect there. I think that it's getting smaller and people are becoming uh, more understanding of what the other side does. Um, but in general, I think that there's still, still this disconnect and a little bit of uh, animosity between the sides of like uh, the marching percussionist and the concert percussionist. And so, in the clinics that I give and the ways that I teach, I just try to try to bring those things closer and closer together. Uh, and so, yeah, we, I'm, we, we can definitely talk more about what that looks like. But to get to the other part of your question, which was just about 
uh, about Professor Van Sice and what does he think of this whole thing. Uh, so surprisingly, he loves that I do this. He loves the idea of it. Uh, we, I mean, he knew about it from the beginning. And some people, funnily enough, when they, when they come to those, those more classical music settings, they try to hide those parts of their musicality. That's never something that I could do or was even capable of doing. So it was kind of on the table from the beginning, and he knew it. And you can smell those things sometimes. You can, you can sense when someone has a certain background. Um, and he was primarily excited about how uh, marketable that made me as a musician. Remember him thinking like, oh, this is going to be huge when we get you out of school and we get you into the job market, like talk about a feather in your cap. But then also he just had a, kind of a long relationship from, uh, I remember actually his first experience, I think, was with, uh, with Neil Larravee when Neil was with Vic Firth and Neil was, was teaching at the Cadets as well. Uh, that he took Bob to a, uh, to a show one time and kind of walked him around and showed him the whole thing. And he ended up loving it and loved the whole the whole theatrical side that's involved in it, and was kind of kind of marvelled at the whole thing. I remember him saying that it, it um, you know, uh, the world's best string quartets on their best day won't play as together as one of these drum corps of twenty-something-year-olds. So yeah, I was I was happy to see how uh, how into it he was, and yeah, it ended up being a, a nice a nice part of our relationship to kind of work on that and, and foster that side of, of what could happen in the future. Very cool. You, you, you mentioned your dad earlier, and I, I looked you up on YouTube and found some, like, a duet with you and your dad. Is your dad also, like, I, I don't know, has he, been, has he been composing throughout yeah, his career as well? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so my dad, he, at, at certain points in his career, he was doing, like I was saying, more... Uh, drumline oriented stuff. So he was the, the drumline instructor at University of Oregon, at, which is where I grew up on the West Coast at Oregon. So uh, University of Oregon and also Oregon State and then in the, the high school circuits around there as well. So that's kind of one part of his life. And also uh, during that time, he owned a publishing company. So most high school musicians have probably played music that was by him at some point, possibly without even knowing. So his company was called Matrix Publishing, and when he sold it, it got split off into a couple different places. So the marching side of the company went to uh, went to this company, Jalen, that's out in Florida, and then Warner Brothers bought, I think, the rest of it. So there was a, there was marching music, both percussion and like full band, and then there was a jazz band catalog, and a concert percussion catalog. So he'd been composing his whole life, whether it was probably started more in uh, like writing music for drum lines and that sort of thing, and then uh, broke off eventually into, into some concert percussion avenues. And so there are a few pieces, yeah, that he and I have played together and that he's written for me. And we, like I was saying, we still, we still work together quite a bit and run a camp together in the summers. And so the, all, all sorts of things that he and I still do together. Very cool. I, I was also going to ask, because you mentioned the drumline topic, what, why do you think the drum, like, you know, the classical world, quote, and the drumline world, quote, like, mm. why do they get along now? Because I, I think Ben, you know, like Ben said, like, they used to not, you know, and I, I remember, I even remember when they, they didn't, you know, and, and when, like you mentioned, like, you would kind of hide your drum corps background if you were you know, in the conservatory and like, like, it doesn't seem like it's the case anymore. So uh, would you know, like, yeah, what, what's your best I mean, account of what happened? It's I, first of all, I still think that uh, it is looked down on by a lot of people. And it's kind of funny. It's, it's very one-sided. 
like even in my life, like I felt a lot of a lot of hate from the concert side toward the marching side, and it doesn't go the other way. If you're on the marching side and you don't, you know, chances are you don't have anything to do with the concert side, and they don't think about it. It's not in their consciousness at all, or something that that crosses their mind. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, it goes the other the other way. So I think that it still does exist where, where there, there's this animosity there. And, and you know, there have been certain kind of sticks with certain schools of playing and certain people that still hold those views. But I think it is becoming more rare because there are just more people doing more things. And so that there are more uh, marching percussionists that are deciding to study concert percussion in some way. I think that there are concert percussionists that are getting interested in the marching thing. Uh, there's certain types of music that's, you know, facilitating that crossover. Like a big one is Andy Akio's music. You know, that he was a bass drummer with the cadets. And so all of the music that you see, all of the, 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 the parts in his music where there are uh, rhythms and patterns that are split between two people, like that all comes from, from his bass drumming background and all of the open role oriented things that are in there again it's, it comes uh from his from his drum corps background and so there, there are these these sort of um big figures that are that have come along the way and and helped i think pave that path a little a little smoother for all of us cool i yeah sort of to follow up on that i mean i would add that if you're a university professor like if you're not hip to it like even if you don't live in that world like casey Cassini and i don't uh if you're not hip to it it's kind of a turnoff for prospective students. Like if a high school student is really interested in drum corps and you're like, no, please, you know, please don't, don't, yeah, it's like not good. <laughs> um, and like beyond that, one of like the biggest things that I've really appreciated about that world is for the, by and large, the music they do is excellent. Like they make really, really good musical choices and I remember in Florida, I had a high school private student that came in like so excited to tell me he found a Spotify playlist of all the original pieces that the drum corps were doing that summer. And I think one of them was like Short Ride in a Fast Machine. And like he would have never discovered John Adams and Short Ride on a Fast Machine if it hadn't been for this. <laughs> yeah. And so like I'm very appreciative that, yeah, like they're playing arrangements, of course, and not playing the originals, but so many students are getting exposed to just fantastic repertoire through this. Hey, uh, hey, hey, Matt. Hey, do you know do you know this do you know this thing? Do you know this? Wait, wait. <laughs> right, right. Am I right? Just speaking of playlists, like I had that on. I had that on MP3 playlists, like on. Uh, Oh man, not not LimeWire. Casey. Yeah. How fast can you play paradiddles? Oh, so fast. Oh, because you know Matt can play them faster. This is this is the only time Ben would ever ask me this is when Matt <laughs> knows he knows Matt could play them faster. I mean, here off the off the cuff, Ben. I mean, with a with half a glass of wine. Oh, something like I'm that. Matt, the question up. is, the question is uh, flam accents though. That's what I, that's what I've been told. I can play fast. That's right. pretty fast. See, pretty fast. I bet that's you good, did. Man. That's I fast. Did. I like it. I bet you, Ksenia, and I could play box slower than you. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I do tell that to my students. I'm like, you know, we always think about how fast we can play. I feel like playing as slow as possible is a whole other skill. 
Because that's when your muscle memory breaks. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. I'll validate you on that one. I can play slow as well. Definitely, we win that one. Um, <laughs> okay, so follow up on, on those questions. What do you think is the the reason behind that animosity? I mean, we know that a lot of university or classical music side people think that somehow participating in marching makes desensitizes you in a certain way or makes you rigid in your movement and sound and so on. What has your experience been? Did you have to weed out some habits? How did how did that work when you first entered the Yale um, yeah. situation? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of it comes from uh, really just misinformation. That when people think you know that there's something wrong with it or someone's doing it in the in the wrong way, that they just don't really uh, understand how it's actually done. And for me one of the things that has made me realize more than anything is, is that every instrument needs to be approached in its own way, right? And so the, the main place to, to realize that is actually when you play marching percussion, like you play marching snare drum and then you play orchestral snare drum, that you essentially have the same instrument or at least what people think as the same instrument. And so they'll, you'll see people try to cross over certain things from one to the other that, and it just really doesn't work. Well, that's because the instrument is completely different, <laughs> that they actually make sounds in very different ways and need, need their own technique. And so I think that you have to imagine the orchestral snare drum as different from the marching snare drum as much as you would imagine the xylophone being different from the marimba, right? If you played your marimba strokes on xylophone, it sounds awful, it sounds terrible. It's really heavy, it just doesn't work. Um, so the, 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 the way that you play it has to match the sound that you're actually creating. And so I think the same thing from these two, these two styles of snare drum and people forget that. Um, also if I'm being completely truthful, I think a lot of the, uh, of the animosity comes from jealousy. I think that there is, uh, people get ashamed that they can't maybe play something as quick as someone who is on the marching side or play something as, um, as cleanly. As someone on the marching side and so the only thing that they can do is make up um, an excuse for why that one is you know not or that one is inferior yeah like in they can't way. play diddy There's, exactly they can't play it like casey does they can't play diddy at all yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah sour grapes sour grapes well, don't I, you, don't... I mean i mean i mean don't, don't you think people kind of look down on it the same way they look down at uh pops you yeah know, it's like you could never like i think they just kind of think it's like show yeah you know, like it's it's for the crowd. It's for the it's just a show. Just like it's like, oh yeah, I'm in the orchestra, but ah, we got a pops gig, and like, ah, it's fun, but uh, it's it's not it's not meaty the way freaking Brahms too is meaty. You know, right? That's what I and I mean, I, it like it's like well, probably a lot of the time that that's 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 not incorrect. You know, sometimes it's like yeah, maybe, but I agree with Ben. It's like man, there's so much good stuff there too, though. You know. So yeah, I mean, it's certainly just just lack of exposure to it is what it probably comes down to. Yeah. Um, another follow up question is: I, I'm really interested in this uh, relationship that you have with uh, your father, and I see a lot of fantastic percussionists like Grubinger. His father is a percussionist, and they play who? together. Or who? Who? 
Kid. Oh, Rubinger. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Who, the other past guy from Europe. Um, and then uh, Vasilena Serafimova, she also grew up, her father is a big pedagogue in Bulgaria. Um, and I'm just wondering, how has your dynamic with your father changed? It was so lovely. I watched a, a recent video of the two of you playing, and when you were done playing, you both like turned to each other and smiled. That must be really special. But how was that growing up? And then, I mean, you went in a in a different direction. But how did your dynamic with your father change? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's kind of progressed over over the years in a very smooth and kind of organic way. There was never, I think, uh, the assumption is when you have a family that's that's in the field in some way that there's a lot of pressure and that was really not my experience at all um i can tell i'll tell you i'll tell you a funny story i'll tell you a story about like me beginning in the whole because when i did start there is this funny story that exists there okay so uh he i started drumming with my dad when i was about nine years old and went through a couple lessons and he saw that there was some sort of natural talent there you know i, I don't think that i've ever had any sort of very unique natural talent it's all primarily been hard work but I think that a few tempo things came a little bit naturally to me and so anyways he, he kind of pushed me and and she, I remember him talking with my mom about this and she was like don't push him too much you're gonna you know you're gonna scare him off it's like no it's gonna it's gonna be fine he's doing, doing so great and sure enough he scared me off so after a couple weeks you know basically in I, I don't remember if I actually said the words but basically it was like oh I just wanted to spend time with you, you know, I didn't want to actually drum I just wanted to spend time with my dad uh, and so, so I quit for, for a year and then eventually decided I might want to, might want to pick it back up again. And that was when things never stopped. So that was, that was the beginning of things. And we, I, he was, he was my teacher all the way through until I was in about maybe 14 years old. And by that point, I had actually kind of surpassed him as, as I think it's hard, but I was 14 and I'd surpassed his, his, uh, drumming ability as, to, as a rudimental snare drummer. And so he passed me off to one of his uh, younger colleagues that was more, uh, more, more fresh out of the out of the drum course scene at that point, and then then had this this uh, sequence of teachers from there. And then he was just a, he was kind of just a, a fan at that point, and and supporting me from this other side. Uh, and then at once once I sort of uh, got out of drum course, when then we started working together much more too. And so that's the part of our relationship that we're at now where we actually run uh, a drum camp together. It's an, it's, a, it's an amazing camp that's actually in its, I think this summer is the 33rd year. So it's been running for a long time out of Oregon. It's the Alan Cowan Marching Percussion uh, Camp. And he started it back when he was uh, working actually at the University of Oregon. And then we, now we, we actually run it together. And so in addition to just the normal family relationship, that's kind of what we, what we are up to as a team now. At any point, were you like, screw you, dad, I'm going to be a doctor? No. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should have been. But right. no, I was. Say, you'd say to your mom, like, hey, the plan worked. It worked. Right. Yeah. So that's the thing. I think that most musicians probably don't want their kids to be musicians. Like, Casey, I think you're the only parent in the room as far. I don't know if anyone else has kids or not, but I'm guessing you, I don't know. Do you want your child to be a musician right yeah you're yeah you're right i I've, I've seen that too musicians with kids like they don't necessarily want want their kids to i mean they, they want them to do what they want to do of right. course like if if he had 
if he had a draw to music, great. And I think, I feel like music should be somewhere in there just because it does seem like a good thing, even if it's just like piano lessons or something. It's like, yeah. I envision, I, I envision that being a, a good thing for any kid. But yeah, you're right. Like, I don't have the strong feeling of like, man, it was a hard, it was a hard go and it's not a very secure go. And uh, yeah, like I'd be, I'd be real happy if he wanted to, she's like, no, nah, I'm just going to be a boring old dentist, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I think that any, any musician parent probably would like for their kids to appreciate music and appreciate what they do. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I mean, it's just like any other parent, like you wouldn't want your kid to go into music just because you did it, but also if they were interested in it, you, I would think, would support them. Uh, but it, it reminds me of something we talked about a long time ago when I think we were talking about grit and all that. Uh, and basically the idea is that if they're in, Mark Applebaum talks about this too, like if there's anything that you want to do other than music, you should do that thing. It's yep. the idea of if you can't imagine your life without doing this if this is like the one thing that you want more than anything else and you think you would be downgrading your life to not do this that's the point at which you should do music i think that goes for anyone musician parent or not um but matt you talked about like your your you started when you were nine and it reminds me bob van sysis talked about he said like i you know the professor at yale school of music and have taught at some of those prestigious universities in the world he said like my goal would be, I would love it if someone would set up a school for young children to get good music training from a very young age. And I think that like people like you demonstrate, yeah, if you had a halfway decent ear that was, you know, trained at the age of nine, it's a whole lot easier than starting when you're 14 years old, something like that. Yeah. And it's really different for percussionists because I think, you know, just for whatever reason in the art form, we start later than your typical pianist. Like I, someone was telling me once, like if you didn't start piano by the age of four, like you're done, your career's over. Yeah, no, for real. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so, so ridiculous to think about, but. Casey, did you remember or did that wine kick in again? I did. Oh, thank you. No, I was, I was poking around uh, the internet there. Um, yeah. So, you know, M Matt, you said the stereotype of parents that like push you into it. Uh, just just for our listeners, like if you don't know that stereotype, it is a really real thing. And I know I experienced it for the first time because my parents are not musicians. They're in English and mathematics and they're always just like very supportive, but very like tacitly supportive. It's like, oh, you need lessons. Here you go. You need instruments. Let's try to figure out a way to do that. You know, I mean, they're just like good supportive parents as, as best uh, as possible. But uh, I remember I auditioned at Eastman for John Beck Sr., and down the hallway, this is for my master's degree, there was just the whole lineup of students auditioning and several of them had parents, you know, like lean down in front of them saying like, okay, now what's his name? That's right, John Beck. Now you're gonna call him John? No, that's right, you're gonna call him Professor Beck. And where does he play? That's right, the Rochester Philharmonic. And who was his teacher? No, that's, no, that's wrong, that wasn't his teacher. And the kid's just like, oh my God, shoot me now. You know, the kid just, they, you can see the look on their face, like, oh, shoot me now. Now, prior to that, I was thinking like, oh man, I wish my parents like understood what I was doing a little more. But at that moment, I was like, oh, I get it. Like, it's awesome that they just like left me here and said, hey, do you want us to stay? Or, you know, do you want us to go to the coffee shop around the corner where we can be warm and relax until you're done? Which is clearly what they wanted to do, you know, and it's like, that was, but that was like, there is the right amount of support, you know? Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about in that in that relationship with my parents that was different. So my 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 mom is a musician too. She's a, a middle school band director, um, and they were kind of funny that they 
had never, even though they were both musicians, they'd never seen anyone love practicing as much as I did. And it was, it was something strange growing up that I, I just loved to practice. And uh, they, they thought it was unhealthy, actually. I remember getting constant push to, to be like, you should really go uh, hang out with your friends or you should go do something. And uh, I didn't want to, like I was really driven. I was really driven at that time. And uh, you know, all I wanted to do was work. And so it was just, it was, it was funny to have uh, musician parents, but that they still didn't necessarily have that same um, desire to, to, to practice like I did. Wow, that's so awesome. That's cool. Everybody, if you're on, uh, if you're just listening to us, you don't get to see uh, Casey's background. But I love this thing, y'all. Amazing. <laughs> it's in the Yale font. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Thank you. Makes me feel at home. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Um, so, Matt, can you tell us a little bit of what you've learned? It's it's been a year since most of us have experienced the the lockdown. What have you learned in this past year of of COVID? What have your activities been about life, mm. about music? What did you find out about yourself? So much. Oh my gosh, that's such a hard question. All right, I, I'll hit on as many things as I can think of, and maybe it'll have a, a stream of consciousness from there. Uh, one of the things that I have done has been reconnect with certain people. So it's been actually, uh, we, we've been talking about some of my marching stuff right now, which is kind of funny because, you know, I, I, I still, a lot of people remember me in that world and know that I have these two sides of me, but actually like a lot more of what I do is, is, is more in the concert side now. Uh, or at least I, the way that I feel my life is being split up is much more maybe like instead of 50-50, it's more 60-40 now. Um, but one of the things that I've done over this time is reconnect with especially one, one person in particular from my time at Blue Devils, who is one of the finest musicians that I've ever played with to this day. And so we used to do stuff together when we were in the group. And we really didn't connect so much over the past, I don't know, it's been like nine years or something. And so one of the things that he and I started doing over this, over this past year was to get together and do some distance projects, to do some writing together, uh, push each other in various ways. That was, so his name's Nick Arce, and he was, a, he was a quad player when I was at, at Blue Devils, and then, uh, then he actually was a snare drummer there later. But so we, we've reconnected and done some, uh, some rudimental projects that have been, that have been really fun. And that's just one, one example of kind of reaching out to people from my past that I, I think that if the day-to-day -day had continued as it was without the kind of pause button from this past year, um, I can't imagine that I would have you know, had, the, had the time to reflect a little bit and, and realize that I wanted to kind of reignite some of those, some of those friendships and some of those relationships. So um, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is just, just reconnecting with people that you know, for one reason or another, we, 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 we don't connect with because of the lack of time, quote unquote, which I hate that excuse, but that's the, the, the first thing that I think of. That's awesome. What about hanging out with chihuahuas? We saw that too <laughs> over social media. We yeah. Yeah. So I have two chihuahuas. They're in the other room right now. Um, I kind of locked them away because they might interrupt the interview a little bit if they come in here. But yeah, no, there's been plenty of plenty of Chihuahua time, and they're do they're doing great, being cute as usual. Interviews a strong word. We're honored that. You're That's right. We're honored to have the hang. <laughs> Hello to the five people listening. <laughs> That's right. No, this one is gonna be. Come on, this one's gonna be a hit. Um, That's right. It's a big break. 
Exactly. Ben, you wanted to talk about something that is very, it's a very sensitive topic to me. And I'm so glad that you picked this <laughs> because it puts me in such bad light. <laughs> <But please. laughs> well, this is relevant to both Ksenia uh, and Matt today. Um, I found, and I had seen clips of this before, but I found like the, the full information on it. Uh, there is a, I found a New York Times review called Yuzha Wang makes a case for the piano as percussion. And if you follow Ksenia on social media, you know that she and our Miami grad school buddy, Lika, uh, just put on a killer full-length performance of Rite of Spring arranged for percussion and piano duo. Uh, and Matt also plays in this group, the Icarus Quartet, which is a two piano, two percussion group, seems like of, of Yale people. Um, and so Ksenia uh, was like, oh no, please don't talk about this because uh, I'll just go ahead and put it out there. Yuja Wang's concert included uh, Rite of Spring for piano and for percussionists. Um, was it so better anyway, than uh, What's that, Casey? Was it, was it better than Ksenia's? Uh, I, well, I mean, Ksenia was doing the work of four people if you were to, you know, <laughs> calculate it. So I think we have to give her plenty oh, of okay. Um, so, but, so I just wanted to sort of briefly talk about what this concert was. And we've talked about Yusha Wang on the podcast before, uh, specifically one time she came under fire for her, uh, her the way that she dressed um, well, more than once. And we, we've discussed that. Uh, and I think we kind of concluded that uh, it's no problem. And it's basically old sexist men. Um, saying what young women should wear, and we're totally cool with Yuja Wang here. Um, but she did this series of six concerts, uh, and the, the sort of title for these concerts was called Perspectives. Uh, the first featured the Austri excuse me, I almost said Australian, Austrian percussion virtuoso Martin Grubinger, uh, and the other concerts have included her longtime duo partner, please excuse my butchering of pronunciations here, violinist uh, Leonidas Kavakos, the musical comedy duo Igudsman and Jew, and the New World Symphony with MTT conducting. And so the, the review opens up with this, uh, I'll read the quote, it says, look up, is the piano a percussion or string instrument online? And you'll find an irreconcilable series of arguments for either side. But on Friday night, the pianist Yuja Wang in the first of her six perspective series concerts at Carnegie Hall this season, made a clear argument for the instrument as percussion, a versatile but ultimately mechanical contraption that makes music from hammers striking strings. Uh, so it goes on to talk about uh, Yuja Wang played this concert with Martin Grubinger and three other percussionists, including his father, Martin Grubinger Sr., who is also a percussionist. Uh, the works on the concert included the review specifically cited the Bartok Sonata for two pianos and percussion, which to be clear, was arranged for one piano and four percussion in this case, uh, as well as Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. Uh, and then the review doesn't talk about this one, but there's also a video of them playing John Sathis's One Study, One Summary, among other videos. You can actually find these performances on YouTube. Uh, and so uh, it specifically talks about Rite of Spring in this review, and it seems like it was a very well-received well performance. It says, weighty and climactic, right often closes programs for a reason, so it was unfortunate that it didn't on Friday. Rather, the concert continued awkwardly with Arturo Marquez's 10-minute uh, Danzon number two, comparatively lighter fare with tango rhythms and crowd-pleasing color. Um, so it sounds like the reviewer wasn't super happy with the pacing of the concert, um, but he said, but that was just one flaw in a daring and declarative evening that ultimately bodes well for Miss Wang's remaining perspective concerts. Um, so I thought it was really interesting. I think my favorite work of the night was probably the John Sothis arrangement. Actually, it's so percussive in the first place. I think it works really well. 
Um, but uh, both Ksenia, I would love to hear about your uh, experience of God arranging and performing Stravinsky and Matt, I could go on about the Bartok Sonata all day. So I think we can spend plenty of time on that. I'll let Matt speak first. Yeah, I'll talk about the Bartok. Yeah. So the, 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 uh, it's the piece that invented the genre. Right, so it's the first piece for two pianos and two percussion. So we have, uh, we have Bartok to thank for what Icarus Quartet actually is now. Um, I wish we got to perform that piece more than we actually do. And maybe in the future that'll become uh, more available. But uh, the instrumentation actually makes it really tricky to program. And because for anyone that doesn't know the piece, there it uses a ton of orchestral percussion instruments. So primarily there's one setup that's based completely around timpani and the other's based around xylophone, tam-tam, bass drum, and snare drums. I think it's also hard to program because of the length. It's a half hour work. So that's half of a you know quartet recital right there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Which we And we actually love doing half program works. We have another one that we do all the time. That's Paul Lansky's piece, Textures. Uh, but the other thing is it's there's no... With with textures, we being that it was written in 2013, there are all sorts of offshoots that we can use. So like we with Icarus, we do a lot of uh, marimba, vibraphone, and two pianos, and then we a lot of times there'll be setups built around that. But that's what that's what textures uses too. So with kind of one setup, we can make a whole concert happen and and program all these other pieces where there's no. That's there's a caveat here. There are no other pieces really that use the Bartok setup. Some have tried, uh, and I would argue, based on our own experience, that uh, none of them are uh, anywhere close to being successful enough to actually put up next to that thing. So if you know the Bartok, it's like such an amazing piece that finding anything that can stand side by side with that, let alone stand side by side with it and just happens to have the same instrumentation, uh, it hasn't happened yet, put it that way. We have some composers in mind that we're looking to uh, commission specifically for the Bartok setup that we think would do a really great job with that, that are maybe more of the orchestral bent, um, but hasn't hasn't happened yet. That's well, and the hardest thing about programming it really is every time you do it, there's some percussionist is going to tell you how to do like the hi-hat cymbal thing, <laughs> or that trick, or they're going to tell you how to do the snare drums off and off. That's really why nobody wants to do it. It's like, I don't That's the real that. reason. I don't want to have that conversation with Ben Charles. That's I the big thing. It's really an awkward moment. Yeah. Yep. How do you do your snares in that? Do you want me to do it? Do you want to do it? It's like, you know, maybe that cymbal thing would work better if you did a hi-hat <laughs> you know, instead of that handoff. I just want to say that I played the Bartok with our, our missing co-host Carly today and Carly and I didn't, well, I guess technically Carly played the snare drums and I, I want to brag that I did an excellent job of being her snare throw off partner, mm. but she had to do it for me too. So we were very complimentary. Um, but yeah, I mean, you talk about pieces that you can pair with it. Uh, I actually saw a performance one time, weirdly enough of, uh, they did the Bartok first and then they did Rite of Spring for two pianos and two percussion. And there is an existent arrangement of Rite of Spring for two pianos. Um, and basically they just played sort of as many percussion parts as they could cover on the timpani and percussion instruments that they had there and maybe brought a couple extras like we are or something like that. Um, but yeah, like you said, it, it didn't really work. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think you need a, a specialized arrangement like perhaps Ksenia's uh, for it to work, but just, uh, 
kind of throwing together some percussion parts on top of an existing version, not, not the best idea, maybe. I don't, I don't know what any of these sound like. Like I've heard of, I've seen a clip of Ksenia's. I haven't seen the one that your article is about. And Brian Smith, if I remember Brian Smith, he was doing it too. He was making a Rite of Spring arrangement. And I heard some of that back here in town um, when he was rehearsing it. But uh, I was gonna ask Ksenia, like, like so, so that's three arrangements of this we've heard of. And uh, I bet they're all really different because it seems like there's, I mean, there'd be, that could be such a study in orchestration and selection. And now I've just heard about a Bartok arrangement for one pianist, which I, I just like, I mean, not that I know that piece super, super well, but I've played it twice in my lifetime uh, with two different groups. And I think like, uh, I don't know how that would work. Um, you know, those piano parts are like so dense. But because um, I think a lot of our young listeners and Matt, man, chime in anytime because you have a lot of experience with this, too. But like, what do you what do you hope to do with that arrangement? Like, is it meant to be published and distributed or sold or just like kept to yourself and recorded? And, you know, anyone who's interested in doing this, they have a, a few options out there, but all those options might not necessarily be available. Right. Well, you know, my my goal is to rule the world and just deprive you all of having this wonderful experience of playing the piece for marimba and piano. Um, no, it's uh, I mean, I did it because I nobody thought that was funny. I don't know what I did. I, I mean, did. It Carly, took a she she well, does like the polite giggle when I. Well, it took a minute because I played like the real Rite of Spring and I played <laughs> I played the 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 um yeah yeah so the yeah, fake one yeah. you can't take that away from me really. <laughs> Um, right. Uh, well, the thing is, uh, I wanted to do that because I, when I was on stage and when I played that piece, I think I've told this story before, but um, in the orchestra, I cried throughout that performance. And that piece is just so impactful to me. And that was the only time I cried on stage while playing. And I just felt like I really need to play more of this. I want more of these notes in my own hands. And so um, our lovely friend Lika uh, was silly enough, uh, ludicrous enough to agree to do this with me because obviously the, the weight is distributed unevenly. She has 10 fingers, I've got four sticks. So she's like 70% of the orchestra and I play the cool stuff when I can. <laughs> um, but um, I found many arrangements. I mean, besides there's, there's that one that Grubinger does, and they do it in quartet version and quintet version, I believe. Oh, okay. I've seen other performances for piano and percussion where the percussionist has stacked instruments on top of each other with timpani and bass drum and so on, and is multitasking the entire time, trying to emulate that percussive um, performance. I think they're all super interesting in their own way. I just... Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, if I could, I'd perform the whole thing myself, but that's currently impossible. Um, so this is what I settled for. And it turns out that you are able to publish it. I, I reached out to Boozy and Hawks, and they said that it's in public domain in the US, mm -hmm. which means that it can be published. I've never found uh, another arrangement of it besides the two piano version is Stravinsky's version, which, by the way, has a bunch of mistakes in it, but uh, mm -hmm. that's all right. Um, but none of these other ones got published. So all I did when I did research was listen to other people play, but I didn't have a, a reference to look at. So but in, in any case, it's such a crunchy, good, juicy piece. And and the thing is, I know I'm always going to fall, you know, I'm going to fall 
flat on my face and I'm not going to reach where I want to be. But the experience of playing that piece and being at the center of that music is so enjoyable to me. I cannot explain. Mm -hmm. And that's why we memorized it, because I just wanted to be in the middle of it. I want to know as much as possible. So I'm now thinking about expanding my uh, arrangement and having it be for also existing for a quintet so I can uh, introduce uh, or a percussion quintet with piano. I can introduce Numa to it. And then I'd love to conduct it one day. And I just want to do everything with it. Like I want to marry the piece and have kids with it. <laughs> like that's you, sound you sound insane. This is awesome. Yeah, I am insane. Sorry, that was awesome. that was all nuts. And uh, whoever's no, that great. take this out, Ben? No, that's that, that's that's <laughs> so so great. I mean, it sounds like it sounds like a good genuine reason to do it. You know, I was I was I was expecting you to say like, oh yeah, you know, I was hoping to publish it and make a buck. But like, no, I, mean, I love what you said. You know, like, no, I want to be inside this piece more. And that, that's probably why it's it's gonna be a great arrangement. It's, I, yeah. there's there's certain pieces i mean like Bach chacon comes to mind where i was just like i i don't care if it works on marimba or not i have to play this and like i think yeah. like that's it sounds like that's sort of where you were but ksenia i i had uh two questions about uh your arrangement actually one of the most difficult things i could see arranging like a beethoven symphony for that combination i don't know how exciting it would be but it's certainly possible but in particular, the the end of the first half of Rite of Spring, uh, there's so many polyphonic lines with all these little trumpet dig -a -dig -a -dig -a -dig -a -dig -a like things in there. And I, I remember seeing that that clip in your uh, sort of you know highlights reel of it. Um, but one, how how did you deal with that? Because I think even with Lika's ten fingers and your four sticks, you probably would have run out of polyphonic lines. And then uh, the other question I have is, uh, was there a riot at your performance, like the premiere? Definitely. The five people, they turned over their, no, no, it was, it was all good. I think there was a nice, decent, you know, pleasant little applause. And there was all a clap from the COVID audience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, wait, what was the first question? Oh, the polyphonic the lines. I mean, um, again, that piece is, is just so perfect in its idea that, Oh God, it's such a hard conversation for me. I feel like I, I love it too much. The two piano version too does not deliver what the orchestra delivers, but it delivers a different experience. And exactly when you know the reference, when you know the orchestral part, that's when you can sort of hear this, these multiple colors in the pianos and so on. And even with two players on pianos, you can't get that sort of jagged experience. It, it gives you something else. And the same went with us. I just went for, okay, what do I think is most important at this point? What is most exciting? How can I use what are the strengths of our two instruments and try to bring stuff out? I am sure that in a year, I'm going to feel differently and I'm going to change things. In 10 years, I'm going to change things. But again, for me, what was most important is that I am so excited about this music and I love it so much. And all I want to do is live with it. Just like what you said with the Chacon. I feel the same about that piece. That's my second like favorite piece uh, in the world. And I just... I don't even care if I never played this for anyone. It doesn't matter. I just want to play it for me because I love it. Just I can't explain how much I care about the piece. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I, I know I honestly only cried then on stage, Casey Cangelosi. And um, no, I'm not going to stop no, now. Neither Ben or I believe that. If Carly were here, she wouldn't believe us or believe <laughs> you. She'd be with us. Three, so it's three against one. And Matt doesn't believe you either. He's never believed me from the moment. <laughs> I, I just, I, two second thing I wanted to add. I, I might have already said this. I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but but I've gotten to play Red Spring in the orchestra too. And 
to be honest, um, like the percussion parts aren't all that great for that piece. There's the one really awesome bass drum part and the timpani part definitely has some cool moments. But if you're playing Critales and Wiro, you're mostly sitting around for most of it. And I, I don't, I think I, oh, I don't awesome. remember exactly what I played, but I didn't play much is my point. And it was still an amazing experience. Like I just, it's just such a fantastic experience just to sit there and listen to it and be in the action. Then I played the bass drum part and I was sitting there wishing like, oh, I wish I was playing that weirdo. Like whenever anything oh, was happening yeah. or like the gong, like I just thought like, oh, I want to play that gong right now. Oh wait, I got to play okay bass drum. But like, <laughs> I, I just, I, everything's so cool. Yeah. Uh, I was I was going to ask Matt, you know, speaking of what what Ksenia, I think really eloquently put, you know, like what can you get out of the two piano version? Uh, you mentioned some composers you're thinking about commissioning, and I guess it could simply be a question geared towards what are those pieces going to be if you want to share. But like, what what do you think two pianos, two percussion, and the Icarus Quartet like? Like, what aesthetic is it that you can get out of that that you just can't get anywhere else? And I'm I'm guessing that's something you're interested in pulling out of these uh composers you have in mind maybe yeah well when we're thinking about that group and what what's really special about the sound one of the things that we realize is actually I, I think it has more power than probably any other instrumentation that you could think of so even more than like a percussion sextet or something when you have heartedly yeah. yeah when you have two pianos and two percussion the sound is just huge and we always say that we had this in our mission statement at one point and we recently pulled it out, but it's, it's the power of an orchestra with the intimacy of a string quartet or something is one way that, that we, that we played around with, with describing the group. Um, Cause yeah, I think it's really true. I mean, it's, we, we played uh, a competition a couple years ago and we were in the, it was the, the finals were us and a string quartet and we played first. And we, we premiered this brand new work by Mike Lorello. And then we played, uh, then we played, uh, textures and the string quartet went on afterward. And, and when we'd talk, been talking with people afterwards, like, it was pretty unanimous that the, the string quartet did not stand a chance. Like you can't, you just can't match a sound like that. And that try as you may, like you can't match that sound. True. Was that but, was that churches made out of shipwrecks or what did you play? No, that was a just a new arrangement that we're actually going to be recording uh, in on our first album later this summer. Uh, it's called Big Things. And so it was originally, if you've heard of the piece before, it was originally a different instrumentation. And then uh, we loved the piece so much that we had Mike arrange it for our instrumentation. We actually changed it a lot. Um, but yeah, so there's a two piano, two percussion version of Big Things. And so that'll be on our first album coming out too. That's awesome. That's awesome. And by the way, that church is made out of shipwrecks. I listened to that on repeat for forever. And then yeah, how really the hell neat. did you, that's so cool. How did you learn <laughs> how to play the guitar for that? that so I'll, cool. I'll tell you a funny story about that. So, I mean, first of all, yeah, I love that piece too. And I can't wait. That was supposed to be on our, um, on our season this year. We were bringing that piece back for all of our concerts. Uh, obviously we haven't gotten to do uh, many of those concerts and so we haven't been able to bring those back yet so maybe next season we get to bring that piece back again because it is uh, near and dear to our hearts um, that's been a, been an awesome project but yeah so there's this if you haven't seen the video there are a couple of really unique things that happen in it and one of the unique parts is that I have to play guitar in the whole thing and I knew this from the beginning uh, so there's this there's this awesome band whose music was inspiring the piece in some way it ended up being a very loose inspiration but you can check it out it's called um uh, uh listener the listener wooden heart is the song 
So go check it out. And there's this slide guitar that you hear inside of it. And that's one of the sounds that Mike had in his mind when he was writing for us. So he was telling me this, and I knew that it was going to be slide guitar. And so I made sure to check it with him that if I, he's going to write for guitars, like I don't play guitar, Mike. So we're we talking like percussionist guitar, like, you know, Jose before John five style where I can put it on the table and hit it with a mallet and move it around. That's what I thought I was getting. Uh, and that's not at all what I ended up getting uh, because over the course of the piece, it changed what he wanted to do with it. So it ended up being this real actual guitar part where I had to, to, to actually like pick the whole thing and finger the whole thing and wear it. Uh, now, luckily, he did me a solid on this, and the whole thing scored a Torah. So rather, if, if we would have left it in original guitar tuning, my hands would have been moving all over the place. So he did find a tuning that made it really, really easy for me to do it, and he even wrote the piece out in, in tab notation for me. Uh, but the funny thing there is that I still don't know how to play guitar at all, because the whole piece was in a different tuning. So if I put it on... <laughs> If I put it on a different guitar, it would not be the right piece. It would not be the right notes. Uh, the other thing that I learned from that experience is that guitar effects are the best. When I practiced it, yeah, I practiced it clean, and I was still not thinking, like, I couldn't get the connection of the notes as well. You know, I'm not a guitar player, so it was only as good as it could be. And then we plugged into the electronics patch, and it sounded so good instantly with the reverb and the delay. Oh, okay. That's that's why people use effects. It uh, it covers up a lot of things. That's so cool. It's, now you can put Rockstar on your on your. CV. That's right. It's that's that's actually Matt Cowan, percussionist Rockstar. <laughs> there's that there's that Steve Schick quote. I probably quoted a thousand times. I love it so much. And he says, you know, when I was a student at University of Iowa. I would walk down the halls and I would hear violinists practicing their strains of Bach and clarinetists practicing their strains of Brahms. And I would go back to my practice room and try and figure out how to bow a cowbell underwater. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, uh, the adventure of being a percussionist, yeah. Yeah, the life of the other. Uh, we had a, 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 excuse me, an Instagram question from our buddy Jade Hales. He says, you spent time on either coast. What would you say is the primary difference between them from a musical perspective? Gigs, player attitude, teachers, etc." Yeah. Well, first of all, shout out to uh, Jade. Is, uh, Jade I, I never recognized that he's, uh, he's been a fan of the show. He was, uh, he was a student of mine way back when. I think I was his first drum teacher. Uh, but I started him as a, as a freshman in high school through the wow. marching band that I was working with back in, back in Oregon at the time. And oh, so it's been, turned, been so, right. yeah. So yeah. it's been awesome to watch him, watch him sort of progress and then get to work with him on the solo snare drum piece that he commissioned a couple of years yeah. ago. Um, so anyways, that's awesome. Happy, happy to, to, to answer a question from Jade anytime. Um, so the difference in the coasts. Yeah. Uh, I kind of knew from the beginning that I needed to be on the other coast for what I was going to do. So obviously grew up in Oregon, uh, did my bachelor's degree there, and then moved across the country for my mass. I started a master's, first I was at Peabody, and then I actually did the, like, did the, the completed the master's at Yale. So, and I've been out here ever since. Uh, there's a, there's a, a huge difference. There's a huge difference. I don't know that it has to do so much with the people necessarily, like the actual type of people, but just with, uh, with academics, I guess. And, you know, there are certain schools and there are certain teachers at those certain schools. And there happens to be an abundance of really great schools that are out um, on the East Coast uh, compared to, to what was what's available on the West Coast. Um, 
and so that's just that's just a, a numbers game in some ways and where you know obviously the there's more of an arts hub in certain areas of the east coast than there than there are other places so um i think for me there are more opportunities that you can see kind of pre-existing opportunities out east but i think that out west there it's uh it's there are budding possibilities and so i think that there is incredible room for development and room for for progress and new uh new things that could happen in talking specifically about our field right there's plenty of other types of music that's going on and types of art but as far as like what what we do as contemporary classical percussionists um it's just it's it's a little bit of a different a different scene out there and i think that there are all sorts of places that are ready to blossom out there have you seen the south park episode with the prius cars on the west Coast? oh yeah <laughs> uh, that's pretty much like that's, I, i'd say that sums it up yeah yeah i know jay didn't ask me this question but that's pretty much the deal i think your your answer is better yeah yeah are in there. south park answers everything it, it's interesting to me to hear you say that because i remember i read i i don't know where i read this but somewhere i read a review of when uh michael tilson thomas went to san francisco symphony uh and he i mean it's obviously one of the best orchestras in the u.s and basically the review said mtt has proven that a west coast orchestra can compete in the same leagues as the east coast orchestras which I, I i mean i think that when you think of like the top five in the u.s i don't think san francisco is included in that but they're certainly just as good um and so it's it's weird that like in 2021 there's you still have that feeling of there's more opportunity on the east coast for a uh, contemporary percussion artists yeah yeah I and i i don't know I what it. i meant by that but <laughs> sure no no and it's i i um a lot of the things that i do are out west but i don't really uh i don't know it hasn't crossed my mind to really move back there yet put it that way people ask me all the time if i'm gonna you know am i gonna try to look for a job out west because my family's still in oregon um and so far the answer is no you know primarily just because i'm i'm, I'm here and, and icarus is here and uh but yeah i i think that there again i think that that there is a lot of potential that's untapped out there. I think there's actually a lot more untapped potential there than there is here. I think there's more current potential here. Well, Casey, well, this is this is your opportunity to talk bad about West Coast percussionists, including ones in Oregon. Oh yeah, I don't know anybody in Oregon. Just Jade. <laughs> Jade's a nice guy. Yeah. No, I don't consider that other one you're talking about to be a percussionist. <laughs> he's not even no. a percussionist. No, he's just he's just cooks. He cooks good. Yeah, I know you're talking about. Well, we had one more social media question that Casey has the honor to ask. Oh, I have to do this yeah. one? I don't get this one. Um, I Krolker, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, let's see, if you're a character from the Ballad of Poisonberry Pete, who would you be? I veto this question. Maybe like it was probably a joke there somewhere. Joke. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure there is. No, that's okay. Yeah, what, what is, yeah, what's going on here? That was a question for Matt. <laughs> What's the question? Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If if you were if you were a character from the Ballad of Poisonberry Pete, who would you be? I have no idea. See, Ksenia, guys, yeah. see, see, you know, see how I said I know I don't get that question, and it turned out I'm right. 
are people on Instagram? How do, I can't keep track of who all Matt has inspired. And I don't know, people ask questions. I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, Lewis, uh, we don't have the answer to that. That's okay, that's the editor, the editor's job. I'm going to answer for Matt that he would like to be Poisonberry Pete because that's the only character that we know. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. Uh, Matt, three obligatory last questions because uh, we've asked everyone else. A, who is your favorite person from to play with from the Percussion Collective? From the Percussion Collective? Oh, that's a tough question. That's like asking you to choose between your, do you like your mom or your dad better? Exactly. Uh, My mom. I mean... So um, have to, <laughs> I have to, I mean, Jeff, but that Jeff doesn't really count, right? Because Jeff, Jeff and I are in Icarus together too. So he's like my favorite person in the world. We happen to be in that group also. So if I can put Jeff aside, cause again, he's, you know, okay. he's family. Um, <laughs> then, you know, Sam, um, is my guy. I mean, we are, great friends for a long time now we were talking just earlier today and any any excuse i have to see that guy is uh it's a great time yeah i don't know musically there's it's it's really hard to pick two because they're all you know everyone is is so amazing and really so different to play with too so i've had uh di different concerts different things come out or it's you you mesh with with someone in a, in a new way but um yeah there, i don't think that there's there's necessarily really one person musically that's that is that is my person um but i just have some of these old old uh personal relationships that that are really special that just get to come out in that uh in that group matt i i think you might have been in this performance i'm, I'm ashamed to say i don't remember but a few years ago at PASIC, percussion collective played and they played this amazing michael jackson arrangement where can you get that <laughs> Wiki, I I just have a feeling that uh, that is not out of copyright. So keep. Uh, I think that we gotta we gotta talk about that pretty quietly. I don't know for sure. Uh, anyway, Doug Perry did it. Maybe I should I shouldn't even say that. He's gonna get a he's gonna get a phone call later today. It sounds like a fake uh, name anyway. Don't worry. About right. That. <laughs> percussion Percussion Collective did that. Then like a night or two later, uh, Victor Wooten played with, uh, why am I blanking on his drummer's name? Um, oh shoot, what's that guy's name? The guy that Dave Weckle. No, not Dave Weckle. Anyway, in the middle of their set, they they um, they went into, it's the guy that always chews gum when he plays. Anyway, uh, in the middle of their set, they went into a uh, smooth kernel. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. yeah That's like, what's going on here? Yeah, I was not in that performance. I was at that show. I played, uh, I played the Vignal on that show, but. Gotcha not that piece but yeah i wish i did i've never gotten dennis to play chambers. that that arrangement yet dennis chambers oh, yeah. that's who it was i can't remember the name steve gab nope <laughs> all right fabulous okay uh next question we already talked to jeff about this and he's told us how you keep his uh, chops up and challenge him mm. um, all the time so how does he challenge you jeff mm -hmm. oh man he i mean he challenges me in a lot of ways a lot of um like first of all just just professionally and personally like he helps me stay organized which i think he would deny in a lot of ways because between the two of us i'm the more type a person he's the more type b person but i feel whenever we're talking it's like i have that feeling that i've always dropped the ball on something he'll ask about something i was supposed to do and i was like oh man i completely forgot i i i'm so sorry so organizationally and just like taking care of business he he 
pushes me so much there in a great way. Um, and then I think musically, in in rehearsals and things, we we push each other in a similar way. Not as if we're you know not talking just just hands or just chops or anything, but um, he is a picky picky person, and I love that about him. The amount of times that we've rehearsed some of these some of these patterns in in different pieces that we play, and and taking it off the instruments until it reaches as close to perfection as we can manage at that point. Uh, I remember specifically there's this ending. Of, uh, of the Paul Lansky piece I was talking about earlier, Textures. It's this ending of movement seven. And there are these two contrasting patterns, which he does all the time in his music, right? So he'll take a pattern that's in one odd meter and then a pattern that's in a different odd meter and layer them together. So they're constantly shifting apart from each other until they, they come all the way back around again. And so there's, there's this ending to, th to that movement. And I remember just spending hours and hours it's only it's only eighth notes and sixteenth notes that are in various combinations, and we would play it on the floor so that we get rid of any pitch or any sort of resonance from anything, and just play the rhythms and line that thing up. And the amount of hours we did that was ridiculous, and we love it. We still do it, and he he just has has an ear for perfection, and uh, I think we push each other in in that way a lot. So, say so that's that's uh, that's how he's pushing me. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Okay. And last thing, since you're obviously superhuman on so many levels, <laughs> what was the last thing? And you can't say Laurello's asking you to play the guitar because that's not percussion. Okay. That was not percussion. But what was the last thing that really challenged you? What was the last oh. thing that you played that, that was tough? Oh, um, I feel like everything is tough. I've, I've never been the one to pick things up and feel completely natural at it. So for whatever that's worth to anyone that's out there, uh, everything feels hard uh, all the time for a while. Um, but in, in recent memory, one of the one of the trickier things, uh, I can I can think of these these spots in actually Lorello's piece, uh, big things. So the other one that we were doing. That just ensemble was extremely difficult. So with with, with there's this spot and big things and these really syncopated moments from the the marimba over to the piano where there's kind of a steady a steady pattern going on, but then you kind of have these bombs that get dropped every <laughs> every so often out of nowhere, um, and it's always so terrifying to play because if you if you miss one, I mean it's the most obvious thing ever. And also, if you're not completely together, it's really obvious because there are these it's these unison moments between you and the, and the pianist. Um, so still, to this day, every time we play that piece, I mean, it's it's a lot of rehearsal on that on that uh, on that spot. So just uh, off the top of my head, that's one of the things that that comes to my mind. Um, other things, honestly, uh, every time I do these collaborations with the guy I was talking about earlier, Nick Arcy. Is the guy from Blue Devils that we still work together, and the whole reason we do these collaborations again is not only because you know we like each other and it's 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 fun for us, but uh, we had a certain style of of writing that we we just happened to to be similar in this way. We kind of like to to push the boundaries, especially away from any sort of really um, like steady, predictable beat or predictable groove, and we like to push it outside um, the rhythmic boundaries that way. And so every time we do a new collaboration and I get new music from him, it's so hard and it's not the things that I would think of. So 
it'll it'll be funny because I'll write something that I know is difficult, but still fits in my hands more or less. And he'll do the same thing. And we write that way. We each write eight bars or sixteen bars, then we pass them off to each other, and we combine the whole thing for uh, for the piece. And whenever I get his music, it takes me quite a while just to get that in my hands. Things that feel natural to him do not feel natural to me at all. And because we're trying to push each other, it's not that they feel kind of unnatural and they just happen to be, oh, it's a strange feel. It's like, no, it's, it's physically taxing in some way that my body is not able to do. Uh, so th those are the other things that, that challenge me every time we do one of those projects. That's that's fabulous to hear. And it's so important for, I think, our young listeners to know is that your real friends are not the ones who let it all slide and who are just always like, oh, it's all great and you're cool. No, they're the people who, I mean, your real music musician friends, they're the people who push you forward. They're the people who sharpen your ears and your hands and your brain all the time and challenge you. And just like Dimitri would do to me in rehearsals is embarrass me a lot and question yeah. all of my decisions and uh, offend me that's that's what real friends no just kidding love you Dimitri. it's so it's so important though it's yeah. funny my, my wife stumbles in on some of our uh, meetings sometimes we are weekly meetings with Icarus and she'll be blown away with how we talk to each other not in that we're mean to each other but we're really upfront. so mm -hmm. we, we speak our minds and we speak truthfully to each other but it's not the way that normal humans speak to each other because you have to be on such a certain level of friendship and a certain level of, of understanding with each other that you feel comfortable kind of expressing yourself in a very clear and very honest way. And so whether it's, you know, in those meetings, we're talking business a lot of times, but it's also it's also musically like you, you need to be able to tell someone like you are slow, you are fast. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're not playing with me. You're too loud. Like and you don't need to sugarcoat it. Um, those are those are the the type of musicians you want to play with, and the type of friends you want to have a friend who can tell you, uh, you know, things that might otherwise hurt your feelings. I I could go on about this book all day, but there's one of my favorite books is called Creativity Inc. It's written by Ed Catmull, who's one of the founders of Pixar, uh, and in this book he talks about the value of candor. And one thing that's interesting to me is I think because we deal with criticism so often as musicians from a young age, uh, we, we can understand that it's not a personal attack. And no matter how good you are, if you're rushing, you're rushing. And it happens to all of us. <laughs> Even fantastic, you know, Carnegie Hall level musicians rush and drag sometimes. And yeah, the, the idea of it's, it's not a personal attack. It's not saying you're a bad musician if someone is criticizing you. Um, so yeah, and like the, I mean, that book, like I said, I could go on all day, but it talks about ugly babies. And, you know, when, when we first start uh, a new project, uh, it's, it's an ugly baby. It's not fully fleshed out. And, you know, someone has a baby and they show you it and like, but he's like, babies are kind of ugly when they're first born. They don't get cute for a few months, <laughs> but you're never going to be like, Ooh, that's an ugly baby. You're supportive. And it grows into something, you know, very this cute. Is, this is good, Ben. You should, you should talk like this more often. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just quoting the book, man. Casey, where's oh, your cute okay. kid? <laughs> I know, I know, I know my kid's cute. I just, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, that's fun. Oh that's fun. God. You know, I have, I have worked with that person that like, you can't tell them anything. You can't. It's even, like, it's even more difficult when that person is your student. <laughs> yeah. Well, or yeah, I've just, I've worked with the, that, that person before that you can't even say like, I think we're pulling apart there is there is, you know, you don't even place blame on them. You just, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's on, 
you know, I think Matt's being really humble and kind to say it's, you know, it's nice that your partners can say, hey, you're slow or whatever, but you got to be able to receive it too. You know, it's not the, the obligation isn't just on the person to come forth and say it, but it's also on the receiver also to just like be able to hear that and not, yeah, not like lose their mind and not, yeah, like, yeah. One thing, Matt, if I could ask you, it's sort of along these lines is, there are certain things that, that can be black and white, like are you rushing or are you dragging, but there are other things that are more open for interpretation. And there's this example from my past I can think of where I was playing a xylophone duo passage and the question was, should we use doubles or singles on this? Uh, and there was no right or wrong answer and both me and the other person playing it were very opinionated on which way we should go. Singles. And at that point it's a lot more difficult because it's not black and white, so how do you resolve those sorts of, I don't want to call it a conflict, but how do you make decisions in those cases? Yeah, um, I can imagine how being in a duo, that would actually be really tricky because you've kind of, you have two people with two opposing views. Uh, what's one of the advantages of having a It was quartet? actually, hilariously, it was a trio. So the third guy had to stand there and watch. Oh, good. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's the third person's responsibility then. So yeah, what we do, is we, and we do this all the time in rehearsal, uh, is we just try it both ways, back to back. Okay, we, we, we just A, B it. Now let's play it with this shaping, let's play it with that shaping, what did everyone like better? And we really try not, you can prolong those decisions so long sometimes, and maybe eventually we'll, we'll rehash it at a, at a later point if someone still feels really strongly about it. Um, but for the most part, we'll try them both ways and then, and then take a vote and whatever wins, wins. And I feel this way actually about a lot of things, but I seem to feeling, be feeling this way more and more lately, and as I get older, is that there are very few like, perfect answers to any of that stuff. And that there's that old adage that's like, a, uh, any plan executed perfectly is a perfect plan. I feel like that comes to my mind so often these days. And so I would much rather make a decision and execute the hell out of it, then spend 30 minutes uh, debating it with someone. Yeah, usually the answer is like, just pick one. Yeah, yeah pick one and do work, it really well. You know, yeah. yeah, they'll both work. You just gotta like pick one and, and they, uh, you, you, the one you do more is the, the right answer. Right, and just having really good musicians in the room while you wanna play with other good people, there aren't bad ideas on the table. I'm sure if you were playing with some musician that you didn't respect that much, there might be some bad ideas thrown out there. Uh, but for the most part, what we're talking about, there's, we've got a lot of really fine musicians in that group and no one's, no one's presenting anything that's so absurd that it would, uh, wouldn't work in some way. Yeah, like I was thinking during this tacit to throw my timpani into the <laughs> It's like, that's not written in the score, but that's what I kind of want to, that's how I want to interpret that mm -hmm. rest yeah that's, that's that's not a great idea right that might go in the more uh objective category right yeah <laughs> is that did i answer that ben <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's funny because i was like thinking about it, i was like what did we end up doing i think i, I think we just disagreed and played it our own ways <laughs> fight fist fight throw something at each other arm wrestle and decide that was that was that was a lot younger me that uh that was a lot more opinionated and what less willing to bend. I, I think I would be a little more civilized in my, in my older age here. Mm.
Ben has learned diplomacy in the meantime. No, Ben, you're so diplomatic. Come on. I, I could not imagine you having that issue with anyone now. Come on. You you can even like You didn't know me when I was like 23 though. <laughs> true, true. Okay, okay. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, okay, well, so wonderful to have you on the podcast, Matt. Thank you so much for being our guest and for Thank sharing. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here with all of you. Awesome. Tell us before we wrap, what is the next thing we should be on the lookout for from you? Mm, we have, uh, we have, uh, even before the album, we're going to do, uh, a, we're going to have a, a stream of a concert that we're doing, uh, with Icarus We're recording it next week. Uh, everyone's coming to town and then I think it comes out, I want to say second week of April. So if you, if you check out any of the, any of the Icarus social stuff, you'll find it there. Uh, but yeah, we're going to be releasing uh, on that. Uh, we're going to be premiering uh, a piece by our friend uh, Lilia Ugai, who is down the the composition teacher or one of them at Florida State, and we know each other. We all she's another another Yale friend from a long time ago, uh, and then our first uh, rendition of IQ Tests, which is our call for scores that we launched last year. Uh, that's been a collaboration with with two young composers this season. So we're recording those and that'll be released uh, in April. So that's that's the next thing to look out for. And then, yeah, next fall, the album will be out with it, Chris. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're all looking forward to it. I'll definitely be there front row in the virtual room to watch this. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Lovely to have you on. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Casey. Thanks, Ben. And we'll talk to you all in uh, a week. 277 is up. Bye. Thanks, Matt. Bye, everyone. Thank you.